One of the privileges of coming, coming with the senior pastor position is you get to pick which of the passages in the staff sermon series you get to preach. And this passage before us this evening is one of the great foundational passages in all of the Bible. Um, I hope that I can do it a glimmer of justice and that you will be encouraged in the faith as we look at Galatians 2, verses 15 and 16. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Galatians chapter 2, beginning at verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon us. Lord, we ask this evening that you would open up your word to us. That in it we might see the glories of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and your wondrous plan of redemption, Lord. That we who are sinners unworthy of your mercy and grace have found peace and hope in your work of salvation. We are indeed saved by works just not our own. We are saved by the works of Jesus Christ, receiving them by faith alone. And we ask, O oh Lord, that that gospel would go forward in 2022 in Katy, in Houston, in America, and throughout the world, that you might get all the glory. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, we are coming off the Christmas holiday season. And if your family is anything like mine, part of what you spent your time doing over the days off or the lesser times working is families gather around and they play family games together. Some families might play cards or they might play Monopoly or they might do other things. I want to focus your attention on a different kind of game. It's a game with a funny name called Jenga. I don't know if you've ever played it. It's a game of blocks of different shapes and sizes, and they come in the shape of a tower. And the purpose of the game is that you have to pull a block out when it's your turn and not collapse the tower. And so when it is your turn to pull the block, you have to examine the tower and find out where can I pull this from. And it's not so easy. It's not just pulling from the top, because if you pull the wrong block from the top and even a few rows fall, you've lost. Sometimes you have to pull down near the bottom because the tower is more stable and it'll stay in place. But often you go and you pull a block that you think is perfectly fine to take out and you realize it was central to the construction of the tower. And as soon as you get it about halfway out, everything falls to the ground. Well, I think that's somewhat of a picture of the way we should look at biblical doctrine. 
All of biblical doctrine is important. We're not to say certain things are to be jettisoned. We don't jettison our doctrine of baptism or our doctrine of church government or our doctrine of the last things. But if you'll forgive my analogy, those are Jenga pieces that you can pull out, you can get wrong, and the whole tower doesn't collapse. But this evening we're going to look at a central block. If you don't get this right, it doesn't matter what else you have right. If you don't get this right, you're not a Christian. This is the central doctrine of the Christian faith. How is a sinner made right with God? The Apostle Paul tells us here that the way that a sinner is right with God is he is justified, he is saved by faith, not by works. Now, if you have been sitting in church your entire life, this may not seem like that groundbreaking of a revelation. Pastor, I hear this every week. You go on and on. You even told us about that this morning from 2 Samuel and a battle scene. But I have to tell you that out there in the world, there is no doctrine more feared, more hated, more disdained than I cannot make myself right with God. This is the kernel of the gospel. And so the very first thing that I would like to do from our text is with the Apostle Paul, explain to us how not to be justified. It's often easier to begin with the negative and then to build and give the example of the positive. And Paul tells us how we are not to be justified. And the very first thing that he tells us is that we are not justified by who we are. And again, that runs counter to our culture, to established religion, to philosophy, to so much of our lives. So much of our lives is built on the principle that I am who I am, therefore I deserve something. I'm educated. I'm hardworking. I'm moral. I'm a family person. But Paul says, that's not how you're right with God. He says, we ourselves are Jew by, Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. He, Paul begins by rejecting cultural and birth categories. He says, I know for a fact that we are Jews. And, and we're not Gentiles. And it's almost as if he is telling the Jews the falseness of their impression of their own genealogy. Because you'll notice he says, we're not Gentile sinners. That's almost repetitive in Paul's day. To speak of a Gentile was to speak of a sinner. To speak of a Gentile was to speak of someone who was not near God, could not get to God. To be a Gentile was to be lost by definition. The way you were to be one of God's people was you had to be born a Jew. This is the benefit of being a Jew. And Paul is simply following the Lord Jesus Christ here. You know, it has become fashionable in the last hundred years or so to mock Christianity as the religion of Paul. 
and to say, we need to look at the red letter words in the Bible. We need to look at what Jesus says. Paul changed what Jesus taught. Paul made a different trajectory about how one is right with God. Well, all we have to do is go no further than Luke chapter 3, where Jesus tells the Jews, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to raise from these stones children for Abraham. Jesus couldn't have said it any clearer. You want to place your hope and trust in your birth? That's nothing. God could make stones into children of Abraham. What's so special about your birth? And this is especially an interesting point because I will take you back to a sermon several weeks ago in which Paul confronted the Apostle Peter. As Kurt spoke to us about that confrontation, this statement is in that context. Paul has just told Peter that it doesn't matter if you're born a Jew. You're not better than others. You're not to be separated from them. There is one way to God, that is by faith. And so do not trust in your birthright. Circumcision means nothing, Paul says, apart from faith in Christ. And we're going to see Paul make this point again and again. It's not that circumcision is unimportant. We might analogize to our baptism. We baptize our children. We baptize them as members of the covenant, as inheritors of the promise. But baptism, apart from faith in Jesus Christ, means nothing. It's actually Less than nothing. If you have been baptized, but you have not made profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, your baptism testifies against you. It testifies against you that you have gotten all of the privileges of the covenant. And yet, you have not claimed it. So Paul says, don't look to who you are. Now, why does Paul say this? Is he trying to flatten out humanity? Is he trying to say it doesn't matter where you were born or what your culture is? No, that's not what he's saying at all. What he's trying to do here is root out self-merit. Because there's merit hiding in this statement. I'm better than you because of who my parents are. I'm closer to God than you are because of how and where I was born. And you see... That puts all the emphasis on self. It's about who I am, what I can claim. It's not about God at all. It's about self. Because to be justified means to be declared not guilty. And if I'm right with God because of my birth, how could I ever be guilty? Why do I need redeeming? And this, of course was the entire thought of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They didn't need a Messiah. They didn't need redemption. They didn't need atonement because they were worthy of God. Now, you may say to yourself, but pastor, we don't have Pharisees and Sadducees running around all over the place now. No, we don't. But everywhere you look, on every street corner, every mall, in every restaurant, there are people who believe they are right with God because of who they are and they are worthy.
They have no need of a Savior, no need of redemption, no need of repentance because of who they are. They're a good person. They're nice. Their parents were good people. Their grandparents were good people. They always paid their taxes. They always provided for their family. They always spoke nice in neighborhood meetings. Why would they possibly ever need to be justified? What Paul says here is that the thing that we need to be thinking about is in soteriological categories, saving categories, not cultural categories. And if the church of Jesus Christ were to think more in saving categories than cultural categories, let me tell you right now, we would not have to worry at all about critical race theory or about diversity or about anything. Because it wouldn't matter if we're Ethiopian or Japanese or Canadian or American or Brazilian. We would all need the one Savior, Jesus Christ. We're not justified by who we are. And yet we are also not justified by what we have done. Paul puts it this way in verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. Both Paul and Peter already knew better. That's why they believed on Jesus. They knew that they could not work their way to heaven. Paul knew he was a sinner a murderer, a bigot. Peter knew he was a failure, a betrayer. And yet, they also knew the sweetness of relationship with the Lord because of what he had done, not what they had done. Have you ever had the experience of trying to talk someone else out of a mistake they were about to make? And you say to them, don't do that. And they say, well, why? And you say, I did that a few years ago. Trust me, you don't want what comes from that. Don't buy that timeshare. Trust me. You'll never be able to get out of it. No, 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 no. Don't go near those hot electrical wires. Trust me. Whatever hair you have left will be on end. And what you do is you explain to them your experience of failure, your experience of loss, and how that what they're about to do will not have the effect that they think it will have. And that's what Paul's doing here. You remember in Philippians, he says, if anyone could boast, it would be me. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, circumcised on the eighth day, keeper of the law, blameless as a Pharisee. And Paul is saying to you and me now, if anyone could be saved by works, it would be me. And let me tell you, brother, there is no chance I could be saved by works. I just can't do it. The works of the law don't save. Not moral works. Not ceremonial works. These are just badges, if you will. But they are not effectual before God. Now, it's not that the law is bad. I think sometimes in our modern Christian circles, we have kind of a big picture in which we say, law bad, grace good. Old Testament bad, New Testament good. That's not what Paul's saying here. He's not saying the law is bad. As a matter of fact, in Romans chapter 7, verse 12, he says the law is holy and good. He describes it in the 
most effuse terms that he can. But what he is saying is that legalism is bad and does not save. Now we need to define that term. Because in our day and age, what legalism is, is being slightly more precise than me. Anyone who's slightly more strict about God's law than I am is a legalist. Because of course, I have it perfect. I know exactly how much of God's law to follow and not go over the edge. And anyone who's a little bit stricter, anyone who says, for example, you shouldn't go out to eat on Sundays, or you shouldn't have images of Jesus Christ, or you shouldn't speak to your parents that way, or you shouldn't covet what other people have. If they're just a little bit more strict than me, then they're a legalist. But that's not what a legalist is. The Pharisees were legalists not because they were stricter than John the Baptist or Jesus. Here's a spoiler alert. They weren't. Because Jesus followed every letter of God's law perfectly. Not only in action, but in thought and in word. No, being a legalist means thinking that the things that I do according to the law are what make me right with God. That God looks down. And as he sees me obeying his commandments, he says, Oh, I love him. Oh, he's one I want in my heaven. Look at, look at how he's treating the Lord's day. Look at how he's honoring my commandment not to make images of God. Look at how he speaks of his parents. Look at how generous he is with his money and his resources. If anyone deserves to come into heaven, he does, she does. That's what a legalist is. It's getting on the treadmill and running. And here's the key. Pretending that you're getting someplace. Have you ever gone to the gym and gotten on a treadmill? I do that occasionally. You know, we just were up north in Maryland. I've been now in the south about 20 years. In weather like this, I'm not about to walk or run outside. I just, I can't do it anymore. I'm too southern. But I can go into a nice warm gym and get on a treadmill and set the speed and I can walk and work myself up to a, to, you know, a slow run at my age and get in my exercise. But I'm not going anywhere. I'm in place. I'm burning calories, but I'm not getting across town. I can't go visit my son in Nacogdoches on a treadmill. I'm not getting anywhere. And that's what the legalist is doing. He's thinking he's getting toward God by simply running on a treadmill. There is vanity in this kind of work. Notice what Paul says at the end of verse 16. By the works of the law, only the hardest workers will be justified. Only the most sincere people will be justified. Is that what your Bible says? Because it's not what mine says. What mine says is, no one will be justified. We cannot be justified by keeping the law because we cannot keep the law. It's vain to think we can. The psalmist cries out in Psalm 130, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? And of course the answer is no one. 
Job, in the midst of his trial, said in Job 9, verse 3, If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. You see, we cannot reach the standard that God sets down. You know, in my younger days, before I had shoulder surgeries, I used to play baseball. And I could throw a ball pretty good from the outfield. I like to think that base runners didn't try and run on Fred Greco. They know they might get cut down. Now I can't throw a ball as far or as fast. But I bet I would be just as successful in a contest with any of you, even the youngest and the most athletic of you, if we said the contest is to pick up a baseball and to hit the moon. Now why is that? Because... I don't care if you're Justin Verlander. I don't care who you are. You can't pick up a baseball and hit the moon, can you? But really, that's what it's like to say that we can keep the law. Sure, there are NFL quarterbacks that can throw a football farther than I can. And we can even grade them out. The best of the best of the best. But none of them can take a football and hit the moon with it. It's vain to even try. You see, for us as sinners, even the best of our works are tainted by sin. We cannot escape it. Saying sin still is in us. It doesn't rule in us, but it remains in us. And even the most selfless things that we do are tainted by sin. Let me tell you one final thing about this. That if you are trying to earn merit, you're actually demeriting yourself. Because what you're doing is you're calling into question God and His holiness. You're saying that God accepts halfway measures. That God doesn't really mean what He said. That God really isn't as holy as He is. And so even by trying, you're losing. Well, that's how we are not justified. Let's look at the second thing then, which is, how are we justified? We are justified by faith. Now, the first question that we must ask ourselves is, what is faith? We know from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 8, that faith is explicitly not a work. Faith is not something that we do that God accepts. And again, we come into here a theological error that I'd like to explain in some common sense terms. People often think that the reason why God accepts them is because of the quality of their faith. Because I believe better than you believe. Because I'm more sincere than you are in my faith. That therefore, I earn God's favor. But to do that kind of thinking is to make faith a work. It's something we do. And clearly the scripture says that is not the case. Because if you think your faith is worthy before God, then you are guilty of pride. And that's the way of despair. Faith is not a work. Faith is rather an instrument. The best example of faith that I can give is a classic one. That faith is like the empty hand. Empty. That receives the grace of God in Jesus Christ. 
There's nothing of worth in that hand. It just merely receives what God has given. Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 3, verse 28. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Completely separate from the works of the law. Nothing that we do. And in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are justified by our faith in Christ. And we receive Christ's merit. As I said earlier, it's a trick question. Are you saved by works? The answer is yes. Just not my own. By Jesus' work. By His merit that I receive by faith. And we must understand that faith must be personal. There's an old saying that's true that God has no grandchildren. Now our children and our grandchildren are born into the covenant and given the promises and given the scriptures and given the call to come to faith. But no one will be able to come to the gates of heaven. And when they're asked... Why should we let you in? They won't be able to say, because my daddy believed. No. Your faith must be your own. Now, if you are a child here this evening, or within the sound of my voice, you have a great privilege if your parents bring you to church, pray for you, make you a part of the covenant community, teach you the scriptures. That is no small gift. But then you have a responsibility to grasp Jesus by faith for yourself to believe in Him. Now, how does faith work? Well, very simply, faith works by believing. Both the verbal form here in our text and the noun form here, believing or faith, come from the same root word, to believe. To trust, to have faith. And here, Paul makes it very clear. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus. This is in the Greek what is called an aorist tense. What it means is, it's once and for all. You've committed your life to Christ. You're not hedging your bets. You're not saying, well, I'll follow Jesus now, but you know, I don't know what the future is going to bring. Right? No, it's going all in. Knowing you have no hope apart from Christ. And theologically and historically, we've talked about faith in three sense. The three divisions of faith. The first is accepting. This is called in theological terms, notitia. That I accept the fact that Jesus lived. That Jesus was real. I believe in Jesus. But that's not enough. Secondly, there is receiving. Theologically, we call this ascensus, giving assent to the truth that Jesus died for sinners. Now, I hate to tell you this, but if you believe that Jesus died for sinners, and that's as far as it goes, you're not saved. I'm glad you've gone that far. I'm glad you believe in Jesus. 
I'm glad you believe that he died for sinners, but you must have that essential third element of saving faith, resting on Jesus. Fiducia, it is called. Jesus died for me. He didn't just die for sinners out there. He died for me. And faith is not just believing generically. It's not just thinking spiritual thoughts. What is crucial is the object of our faith. It is not just enough to believe. We must believe in Jesus Christ. Look at how Paul puts it. A person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ so that we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ. That faith has an object, and it's Jesus. Grammatically, this is what we call an objective genitive. The object of faith is Jesus. It's not enough for you to believe in God. It's not enough for you to believe in heaven. You must believe in Jesus, in who He is, and what he has done, and that it applies to you. Paul makes this clear because he repeats this phrase three times. We have to understand that Christianity is not irrational. It's not a jump in the dark. It's not a walk off a ledge believing that you won't fall. No, Christianity is the rational faith and belief in the Son of God who became man in Palestine and lived a perfect life and died upon a cross to atone for your sins. It is truth rested upon. And that brings us to our third and final point this evening. We're justified not by works or by our birth. We're justified by faith. But more importantly, we are justified by Christ. It is the work of Christ that brings salvation to His people. Think about the infinite worth of Jesus. We've just come out of the Christmas season, and as you've heard me say many times, it causes us to get nostalgic, to think about the cute baby Jesus, and to think about what it must have been like when he was born, and the shepherds came, and the angels sang. And then the wise men came years later, and they gave him gifts. What it must have been like to see Jesus as a toddler. Or perhaps you read at Christmas time the story of Jesus in the temple when his parents, Joseph and Mary, brought him with the family into Jerusalem. And there must have been a huge crowd of them because this was kind of the ancient version of Home Alone. Because what happens is they all leave and they don't know that Jesus isn't with them. And we like to think about Jesus, the 12-year-old. I know many parents love to think about Jesus, the teenager. Especially to get relief from their own teens. But that's not the Jesus that we need to focus on. Jesus is indeed fully man. But he's fully God. And so his life and his death have infinite worth beyond anything that we can imagine. And his death has worth to atone for all sin. Isaiah 
puts it this way in chapter 53, verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. I want you to stop for a moment and think about all of your iniquities. Everything you've done. Everything you've said. Everything you've thought that's ungodly. And then I want you to think about everyone else in this room. And then everyone else in Houston. And then everyone else in America. And then everyone else who has ever lived in the world. The worth of Jesus' death is sufficient to atone for all the sins of all mankind who have ever lived. It's infinite in its worth. Now that does not mitigate against the truth we've just spoken about, that that worth is only applied to those who believe. But don't shortchange the worth of Jesus' death. And for that matter, don't shortchange the worth of Jesus' life. It's not just that Jesus died. If that were the case, Jesus could have come as a man in full adulthood, gone right to the cross and died. But no, Jesus lived a life. He learned obedience by the things he suffered, the scriptures tell us. Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 5, verse 19. For as by the one man's disobedience, Adam's, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And so what that means is that the righteousness of Christ is applied to us. And so, believer in Jesus Christ, you are not just an escapee from hell. No, you are a son or a daughter. You are beloved because of what Jesus has done for you. This is the great transaction. Our sins placed on Christ. His righteousness placed on us all by faith. We are accounted as righteous. That's why the publican in Luke chapter 18 can pray to the Lord, God have mercy upon me, a sinner, knowing who he is. He wants the mercy of God to come to him to change who he is. And faith only justifies because it takes hold of Christ and his benefits. That's the only way to be justified. Do you see the universal progression of how Paul expresses himself? He begins with a generality. A person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And then he makes it personal to himself. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus. But then he said, it's not just my experience. I'm not just giving you my experience to put up against someone else's experience. He says, no. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. It's universal. It's the same in the Old Testament that it is in the New Testament. Because after all, Abraham is spoken of in the New Testament as the prototype of justification by faith. Paul explains justification by faith by pointing to Abraham. That Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And here actually... As Paul writes, there's an echo of Psalm 143, 2. Enter not into judgment with your servant, the psalmist asks the Lord. 
For no one living is righteous before you. Now, if you want to be counter-cultural, if you want to swim against the flow, if you want not to be bought into what everyone is doing around you, then believe on the Lord Jesus Christ because every other religion, every other philosophy tells you to do. Only the Lord tells you it's done. And that is a crucial difference. That gives true hope. That gives assurance. That is how we can rest, even in the midst of pandemics and family struggles and financial difficulties and threatened wars. We can rest soundly because we know we rest in Jesus. Do you know that kind of hope? Have you experienced that kind of faith? A faith that is a solid rock. You can, Paul says. You have to get off the treadmill. You have to stop thinking that you are the cat's meow. You have to stop believing that you are just around the corner from completing the course. You have to trust in Jesus. Will you do that today? And if you have trusted in Jesus, will you continue to do that today? Because there will never be a day in your life on this earth when you don't need to trust in Jesus. I don't care how long you have walked with the Lord. We need Jesus. Let's pray.